Hello, good people. Welcome to Dismantling Injustice, powered by Envision Freedom Fund. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be focused on the criminalization of young people. And today we're joined by Professor Kristen Henning, a youth defender, law professor, trainer, and the author of The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. In the book, Professor Henning sheds light on the pervasive issue of racial discrimination in the American justice system and presents a compelling argument about how Black children are targeted, stereotyped, and criminalized in the U.S. So when we come back, we'll be joined by Professor Henning. Professor Henning, welcome to Dismantling Injustice. Thank you so much for having me, Carl. Oh, no, of course, of course. Um, I read your book when it actually came out. Well, read is um, a strong word. I listened to your book. Um, ah, yeah. So I thought it would be just super exciting to have you on. Um, so I wanted to start um, by asking if you could just tell us a bit about yourself. I know you um, worked as a public defender for quite a while, working for juvenile justice. And, um, you know, I was just hoping to learn more about you and hear whether there were any stories from those years that have stuck through, stuck with you and shaped your work today. Absolutely. So I am, you know, a, a Black woman from the South. <laughs> um, I grew up in a family of teachers and preachers, all of whom cared passionately about young folks, um, about children and children who were vulnerable and, you know, at risk uh, Um you know, of abuse in society and, and mistreatment in society. So I um, had, grew up with a love for children. And then when I went to college, I realized that I could be thinking about the relationship between um, law and children, police officers and children. And I got an apprenticeship at the local courthouse. And you asked me about stories. There are definitely stories that stood out and sort of shaped the person that I am. One of the stories that um, I recall is when I was uh, assigned to the juvenile court as a young college freshman um, to work as an apprentice in the, the district attorney's office, I walked into the courthouse and I walked down the hall and I encountered a group of children who were chained together at their arms and their legs, being escorted, yes, um, by the bailiffs to their courtroom. And I must tell you, as a college freshman, I was just blown away. I had no idea that we shackled children in contemporary America. And of course, those children were disproportionately black and brown children. And I walked into that courtroom, I sat down next to the prosecutor, and I pointed across the room and I said, you know, I really want to be over there. <laughs> and um, I was pointing at the kids in the defense table. I wanted to be representing the kids, not, you know, um, you know, prosecuting. And so that for me was my, it was a huge wake up call. It was an aha moment. And so I have been representing children. Now I moved to the, after I graduated from undergrad, I went to law school, moved to Washington, D.C. and I have been representing children accused of crime and delinquency in the nation's capital for the last 26 years. Plus, I've been training defense attorneys all across the country um, for many, many years. And there are so many stories that stick out um, about the ways in which we disproportionately um, arrest, detain, sentence Black youth 
um, really differently than we do white youth for the exact same types of behavior. And I think so many of us believe that when we talk about the arrest and prosecution and incarceration of children, we must be talking about the most serious violent offenses. But the reality is the vast majority of children of any race and any class are not engaged in those serious high profile cases like rape, murder, carjackings, you know, mass shootings, things of that nature. Yes, there is a small percentage of them that do, but we as a society, we we react and we respond to the the collective. And I mean the collective, the collective of black and brown children as if they are a threat when it is truly a very small percentage, you know, seven, eight percent at most who are engaged in that type of serious violent offense. And then even for that seven or eight percent, um, we 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 treat them as if they are beyond redemption absolutely beyond redemption. Um, and so I think that's that's a, a really wonderful place to think about the work that I do um, and why I ended up writing a book, you know, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. It's from 26 years of practice, mm. right, um, is, is really the starting point. And there really are, you know, many more stories about actual mm. clients that I could share like yeah yeah um yeah you know you and i'm glad you started to touch on this um you you really get into some of those stories in your book um and in particular you talk about our country's relationship and fear of black kids um and how it really permeates our systems and society um you started to talk about this relationship and this manufactured fear i love if you could describe that more but also if you could get into like what are the ways that black children are not afforded the same adolescence or or really childhood as their white counterparts. Um, in what ways are their normal um, youthful behaviors criminalized? Yeah, and you know the best way to really get folks to think about it is is to sort of ask yourself what did you care most about when you were a teenager. And when I ask this, you know, in a crowd of people, I invariably get answers like, you know, look, we cared about the music that we were listening to, um, the the clothes that we wear, what, that we were wearing, the the way we styled our hair, the kids we got to sit next to in the cafeteria, the parties that we got invited to, those kind of things, the risks that we took, the excitement, the adventure. That's what teenage, that's what means what being a teenager is really all about. And so when I talk about the criminalization of Black adolescents, for example, I am talking about the ways in which Black children are demonized, punished, suspended from school, arrested, sentenced, treated as an adult for doing those things that we all did when we were kids, right? So I could pull the thread on any one of those. So let's just take music, for example. Think about country music, pop music, heavy metal, hard rock, all these genres of music that have very similar misogynistic themes, glorification of drugs, sex, violence, alcohol, all the things, right? Um, but pretty much without consequence. We begin to talk about rap music and hip hop music and the children who listen to it, let's say in a park, are treated and perceived as if they are the most dangerous children alive, right? When all those same genres, uh, uh, other genres have the same themes. So pull, um, for example, clothing for a second. Think about 
the tie-dye era, the hippie era, tie-dye t-shirts, um, bell bottoms, commonly associated with hallucinogens and weed. But we never, of course, outlawed a tie-dye t-shirt. Think about the all-black attire, the straight black hair, commonly associated with the goth era and the goth fashion statement, also commonly associated with some of the mass shootings, right, of the 80s and 90s. Of course, we didn't criminalize all black attire. And even today, think about the steel-toed Doc Martens with red shoelaces, Mm -hmm. which some white supremacist group, young white supremacist groups at that, have um, adopted as their fashion statement. We haven't criminalized that. But what is the one thing that we have criminalized on the books? For example, is sagging pants, right? I have no desire to see anybody's underwear, but the question becomes, are we criminalizing a hip hop fashion that is commonly associated with black youth in ways that bring them in more frequent contact with the police, which is, you know, unnecessary. And when we're talking about adolescence, a a police contact over sagging pants, for example, can go from zero to a hundred, not because the kid is, you know, doing anything out of the ordinary, but in fact, is being quite ordinary. (laughs) He's being a normal adolescence. And what do we know about adolescents? They're impulsive and reactive and emotional. They're fairness fanatics. They know they're being targeted, um, disparately targeted, racially targeted, and sometimes they speak out. So we have to understand how quickly that can turn. And then even without a crime on the books, think about the, the, hoodie. You're wearing a hoodie, Carl, for those of you who can't see you, right? You're wearing a hoodie. And think about how many, you know, black and brown children are perceived to be um, criminal just based on um, that that fashion statement. So that's a lot of what I'm getting at when I talk about the, the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors. And again, I should point out for folks, as tragic as the violent crime is in our country, right? Like even when we have moments where, you know, carjacking or gun, um, you know, shootings are, are, you know, worrisome for us as a community. I worry about them too, but we treat Black children differently when they get caught up into those spaces, right? We forget that they're still adolescents, right? With all of the same impulsivity, poor judgment, failure to think ahead. Um, They're a product of their society, all of that. We give them no grace. Oh, you talked about so much in there. Um, And this makes me think about the fact that, you know, we're having this conversation just a few weeks after the attack on Ralph Yarrow, the 16-year-old boy who was shot and wounded. Um, Fortunately, he's alive, but um, he was seriously wounded after ringing the wrong doorbell in Kansas City, Missouri. He was, um, you know, he was picking up his twin siblings and he just went to the wrong address. Um, and now we know that um, racist interactions with police um, and self-deputized civilians are often an everyday occurrence for Black children. Can you talk to us about the long-term effects of this trauma and this constant threat of violence? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma that this disparate treatment, this policing, this criminalization of adolescents has on Black children. Um, the, the research shows that young people who are frequently 
the target of police surveillance, for example, or who live in heavily surveilled neighborhoods, or who are the frequent target of stops and frisk, or guess what? These 911 calls, right, um, by civilians um, report high rates of fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness. They become hypervigilant, meaning that they're always on guard. For example, not trusting police officers. And that distrust of police officers carries over to other um, authority figures, for example, teachers, counselors. But it also makes them afraid, right? To be like, you know, think about Ralph, like to, to walk down the street. And Ralph is not the first one. We think about children in Michigan, right, who um, walked up because he got lost going to school. Um, and knocks on a door and the person who answers the door literally runs out to the front porch and begins shooting as he's running away, right? Like this is not the first time any of this has happened. We know this, right? But they live, you know, young people live, Black youth live with that pervasive fear. And the trauma that I'm talking about occurs not just from surviving um, these moments like Ralph did, but they also come from um, hearing about or witnessing these um, police stops, civilian calls, watching George Floyd killed on national television, learning about Tamir Rice, on and on, learning about Jeremiah Harvey, who was the um, you know the nine-year-old boy in a bodega in, in Brooklyn who a, a woman called the police on him because she was convinced that he was touching her behind sexually. When in reality, the video showed that he had merely walked into the bodega, his book bag accidentally brushed past her behind. Um, he didn't even look at her, he hadn't even noticed that he had hit someone. So these are the kinds of fears and anxiety that young black kids live with. And so again, that trauma occurs not just from being the direct target, but from hearing about it, witnessing it, among people who are friends, family, um, neighbors, classmates, or complete strangers like Floyd. Um, and so that's what that trauma looks like. Like, as you say that, I, I'm also reminded of the incident that happened here in New York City just this week, where, a, you know, a young man, maybe not an adolescent, was killed on the subway station by another passenger in front of dozens of people for asking for money. Right. And it's some and it's something, you know, for those of us that are that ride the subways here in New York City, you know, we see a lot of youth on the subway also asking for money or selling candy, performing on the subway. And um this type of trauma, you know, when they witness something like this, this this lives with you. Absolutely. And you use the word, um, I, and I talk about this in my book, the, the, they, they are deprived of the privilege and the opportunity to just be kids. And you talk about singing, you know, singing is an art, is a creativity, playing their music or um, selling water. Um, we've seen that in, in certain cities across the, the country where somebody calls the police or assumes that they are a threat. That's being creative and industrious, right? So, you know, a, a white child in a middle-class neighborhood sells lemonade because there's a lemonade stand. We reward that. But a black child on a metro or a subway 
you know, is very much treated as a as a criminal. And so those are also additional ways in which um, the children, black children are deprived of the opportunity to just be kids, to test, to experiment, um, to be creative. And, you know, I, I think in several of the questions that you've already asked has been embedded um, this question of what what's the source of that fear? And I think that's worth, you know, recognizing, I, you know, you talk about the killing in New York harkens back to Bernard Getz, right? Killing those kids, um, you know, in the eighties and, and, and the, you know, the fear of black children, the super predator myth and narrative of the 1990s. Um, and what we have to realize is this fear narrative has been a part of our country's foundation since the very inception. Mm -hmm. And so our country was founded um, on the hands and on the backs of Black um, uh, children and Black adults who were enslaved um, for purposes, for serving, you know, the, the purposes of the of, of building this country, to be quite frank. Um and the only way you can justify the enslavement of an entire people and the enslavement of children is to create some narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, manufacture a narrative that would justify it. The narrative in the era of enslavement is that, you know, Black folks are lazy, um, you know, imbeciles need to be controlled and directed by a white, you know, purported master. Um, also that black folks are dangerous, need to be contained. Yep. Um, and so that was an explicit narrative. Fast forward to the lynching era, right? You know, post-emancipation, folks are still being lynched. In order to lynch a 14-year-old like Emmett Till and other folks, again, you have to uh, manufacture a narrative mm -hmm. that will justify that that level of brutality. The narrative there is that black men in particular and black boys are brutes and thugs and a threat to 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 white women. That's the narrative that gets a Emmett Till killed. All we're still talking explicit narratives. Fast forward again to the 1990s, and we're already talking about the super predator myth. There was a moment of temporary uptick, and it was a temporary uptick in crime in New York. And, you know, uh, a professor, John DeUlio, claims that Black children are going to run amok by the year 2000 and rape, maim, and kill, um, and literally wrote about this in papers and called them super predators. That narrative alone, an explicit narrative, naming Black children had some of the most profound impact on the juvenile and criminal legal system as we know it today. It made it easier, all the states, all 50 states during that era, made it easier to prosecute children as adults and to impose serious or severe um, sentences like life without the possibility of parole. And Black and Latino children were disproportionately, significantly disproportionately overrepresented. So those are three errors of the explicit narrative. Fast forward to today, even when it is less politically correct to talk about Black children as super predators, we still use the word thug, but, you know, to talk about Black children as super predators and brutes and, and you know, you know hypersexualized, even though we don't talk about that explicitly in quite the same ways, you better believe that these 911 calls, these shootings that are happening on the subway and elsewhere, when somebody asks for money, somebody's laughing, dancing, talking, that is a part of that embedded narrative that has now become sub subconscious. I ask the average person, the average listener, 
right? Who even who is committed um, to the well-being of Black children to ask yourself when you walk through a park and you see a group of Black boys or girls laughing, um, you know, being silly as teenagers are wont to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Are Afraid. Do you pause? Do you hesitate before you keep walking? That's a part of that subconscious bias that is causing that fear and driving those shootings and and nine one one calls. You know, you've really broke down this history of the way that fear has been used to justify violence against black youth in particular. But what's the path forward? Are there any solutions? It's less politically correct today to use terms like super predator, but I'd argue it's like very mildly, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. You are right. <laughs> and it's the, and, and they're new words, right? Like I'll yeah. tell you even the people. So we talk about um, juvenile court and we talk about the juvenile this and the juvenile has done that. I'll tell you the kids that I represent, say that the the word juvenile is the new word for thug. You know what I mean? So we, you know, did you see that juvenile on the street corner? First of all, we don't call our own kids juvenile. So why are you calling, you know, some, you know, kid that you see, you know, juvenile? (laughs) Um, And I know that sounds like a strange, you know, concept, but we actually did some research around this and we found that there is no other context um, that is a a positive context in which that word is used. It's like juvenile diabetes or like, you know, as a disease, juvenile male as in a horse or juvenile. Juvenile. And the word is meant to be thug, delinquent, fool, mm-hmm. you know, hooligan. It's it's the new word that is supposed to be sanitized. So you're absolutely right. You asked the question, what's our path forward? And I think that's the right question. Um, I think there are several ways forward. I think for, you know, uh, what I call, you know, a, a lay reader, right? A, a, a lay listener, you know, the average person listening to a conversation like that is one, we all have to check our own biases, right? Um, and, and some of that comes from getting proximate, getting proximate to the young people who are most impacted. Mm-hmm. And so one of my, um, a, a psychologist friend of mine said something that has just never left me, which is that every single child in this country deserves at least one irrationally caring adult. I take that further and say every child deserves a team of irrationally caring adults. What does that mean? That means we understand that we were children too, and that every kid is going to make some some mistake, do something you know wrong, and sometimes even that wrong impulsive behavior leads to some tragic outcome. But we're going to show grace. We're going to show um, uh, support, redirection, compassion, all of that um, for that young person. We're not going to embarrass them, shame them, put them under the jail. We're not going to do that. So that's really important. Um, uh, one. So getting proximate to some child that's not your own and being that irrationally caring adult. I would say, though, as a matter of, of policy, I think we as a community need to think about how do we intervene in the lives of young people um, without traditional law enforcement strategies. And I don't just mean policing in a blue uniform, but I truly mean intervening with young people who are at risk, young people who have um, mental health needs, young people who are impoverished, young people who lack vision, uh, but providing opportunity 
um, and a continuum of mental health supports. And so if we're worried about school safety, we're worried about community safety, then we need to adopt a public health approach to to that challenge, Mm -hmm. right? And so what in the world does that mean? It means, right, a trauma-informed approach that recognizes the incredible importance of cultivating relationships, meaningful relationships between adults and children. It means a racially equitable approach to safety. And it also means a restorative justice framework. At a very, very practical level, it means we are going to hire, spend our dollars less on police and schools. In fact, you know, you know, it's not radical to say that we need police free schools, that instead we need a continuum of mental health supports counselors, therapists, um, groups, social emotional learning in the curriculum. We need all of that. Mm-hmm. We need um, peer intervention. And in those schools, and I don't pretend like violence doesn't exist, but in those schools where there is real violence, we need violence um, interrupters and credible messengers, people who look like um, the, the children who are most impacted, who can go into those schools and engage them on a one-on-one level, mm-hmm. who can intervene right with those skills and not a law enforcement punitive intervention. Right. Everything you're saying sounds logical and makes complete sense. You know, the problem is that we don't, you know, our society doesn't invest in solutions that actually work. We invest in the easy answer, which is lock them up and criminalize. To actually think about longer term solutions requires a finance, an economic investment, but also a political investment. That's right. We know policymakers, that's you know, that's that's top of mind for them most of the time. Um, and our youth, um, you know, don't, to them, they don't have power, but they're building it, which is um, very encouraging. And we see youth movements start to come together and to push for these things as well. That's absolutely right. I was actually, as you were talking, I was just thinking about youth activism and who's the voice. Mm-hmm. And so I say a couple of things, you know, I I get it, right? That, that there are so many... Um, both lawmakers and constituents, right, who have a hard time accepting what works under the research, right? So for a lawmaker, it takes a lot of courage. It takes research or at a minimum, when I talk about research, it talks, it means engaging with folks who've done the research and have gotten empirically based evidence about what works best and what doesn't work best. We know that locking kids up under the under the jail, <laughs> if you will, is not helpful, right? These kids eventually come out and they come out worse for wear, right? And that we would rather, and I, I get it again, a lawmaker has to answer their constituents. Their constituents, as you said, want an easy answer. If I feel unsafe, even as a Black woman, I feel unsafe. I want to live in a safe neighborhood. You, What will you find that will help me feel safer? And the thing that lawmakers across the country are willing to find is traditional law enforcement responses. We live in a country where everybody has been literally brainwashed to believe that the only way to keep us safe 
is to have um, law enforcement. And we see in other countries that have lower crime rates than we do that that's not what's necessary, right? So why don't we look at what works? Why don't we invest in mental health? Because it's not fast, it's not easy, and because we've invested so much already in traditional law enforcement. So to re to go backwards is what is what people would say instead of forward. Um, but it is it's forward looking to figure out what the alternatives are. So with regard to the constituents, it's part of it. It's educating constituents too. It's getting those folks who are in you know who are pushing and who are the loudest around crime control to understand what the alternatives. If you only teach me about police and schools, if you only teach me about law enforcement in my community, then that's what I want because that's all I know. But if somebody teaches me and promises me that they will fund what really works, then I would want that instead, right? Um, And I think the other thing you say about funding is really important is this idea that we have to meaningfully fund it and that we have to be willing to stay the course even when one tragic thing happens. So what happens is people will say, okay, we'll finally replace police in schools with mental health in schools. The very first time something happens at that school or in a neighboring school, like a a, a severe fight or a shooting, we want to roll it all back. Right. Um, And go further than we did before. We were go further than we did before. Right. Yeah. So true. Um, Well, this conversation has been amazing and so insightful. How can our listeners learn more about your work? So a couple of things Um, I would say, you know, read The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. It's a collection of stories interwoven with the research in plain language about some of the topics that we, you know, have been talking uh, about here today, Carl, you know, um, the traumatic effects of criminalizing children, um, the evolution of adolescence and what that means and the privilege of adolescence. It's about serious uh, uh, offenses and how do you intervene best. It's about Black families in an era of mass incarceration. So it weaves together research as well as stories. So that's one. Another thing is the um, I teach at Georgetown Law School, so I am a, a law professor, but I direct a juvenile justice clinic and initiative, meaning that we are on the ground in the community representing children. We are also um, providing extensive trainings, um, workshops, uh, uh, speaking engagements to um, people across the country, uh, people like your listeners teachers, judges, prosecutors, police officers, um, defenders, you name it, Um, libraries even, right? Social workers, psychologists. Um, We want folks to understand this information as they make decisions, as they provide treatment, as they intervene in the lives of children. You can find that work. You can um, literally Google, I hate to have you do this, but it's the best way to do it. The Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative racial justice work. If you just put that in Georgetown Juvenile Justice or racial justice work, you'll find me. Uh, Kristen Henning, Prof. Chris Henning at all of the social media handles. And I have um, a website called rageofinnocence.com. So I hope you'll check us out and um, see what we're doing in the community. Yes. And listeners, I definitely encourage you to get your hands on um, Professor Henning's book. It's amazing. 
Again, if you don't like reading, listen to the book. I got it on Audible. Um, and yeah, it was it was fantastic. And something about hearing, having the stories told to me was that actually um, made it even more resonant. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Professor Henning. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me and for having conversations like this. Listeners, until next time, we are out. Thanks again for joining us. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund, an organization that works to transform the immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical needs of individuals impacted by these systems daily. To learn more about our work and donate, visit us at envisionfreedom.org. That's envisionfreedom.org. Dismantling Injustice was created by Sally Israel. Our executive producer is Abigail Wolf and hosted by Carl Hammett Lipscomb. That's me. Special thanks to the team at Envision Freedom for being amazing. Until we're all free, peace out.